It's Thursday, October 21st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. In a first-of-its-kind procedure, surgeons transplanted a pig kidney into a human, and it immediately began to work. The kidney was grown in a genetically altered pig, modified so the human body wouldn't reject the organ. While the procedure was a success, it was only monitored for 54 hours. So the big question is, what would be the long-term viability of the organ? Ronnie Rabin, health writer at the New York Times, joins us for this success that could one day be a new source for transplant organs. Next, the White House has unveiled its plan for getting kids aged 5 to 11 vaccinated once the Pfizer vaccine is approved for that age range. The vaccines would be distributed in pediatric offices, pharmacies, and schools. Kids are largely spared the worst effects of the virus, so the big hurdle will be getting parents to vaccinate their kids while there is already so much pushback. Sabrina Siddiqui, White House reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Finally, a story of a multi-million dollar shoplifting scheme run by a father-daughter duo. They would give shoplifters a list of items like razor blades, toothpaste, shampoo, and over-the-counter drugs, then turn around and sell them on online marketplaces at a discount. Lucas Alpert, financial crime reporter at MarketWatch, joins us for how it all happened. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The object of this study was really to provide the first evidence that you know what appears to be um, promising results from non-human primates um, will translate into a good outcome in a human. Joining us now is Ronnie Rabin, health writer at the New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Ronnie. Thanks for having me. I want to talk about a very interesting story. The first of its kind, really, surgeons attached a pig kidney to a human and it was working. Now, this kidney was grown in a genetically altered pig. There's a lot of promise with this. A lot of people think this could be a new source for transplant organs. Tell us a little bit about what we know about this, because it wasn't a very it wasn't a an exact uh, kidney transplant. There was a couple modifications to it, but overall, it did seem to work. This is the first time. So they didn't want to put a real live living human being at risk. They've done these transplants between animals. A lot of these pig uh, kidneys have been transplanted successfully into monkeys and baboons. But so they what they had what they did was very clever in a way. They had a a, a person who was very ill and, and died actually and was being maintained on a ventilator. And this individual had been a registered organ donor. And they approached the family and asked if the organs apparently were not suitable for transplantation, but they asked the family if they could use this person's body while on a ventilator to do this basically experiment and see if the pig kidney from this genetically altered pig deliberately altered in order to reduce the likelihood of a, of a rejection from a human, whether they could do this. And everyone's troubled by the fact that it wasn't really implanted inside the body. But, but for all intents and purposes, this was a transplant because the kidney started functioning. It was attached to blood vessels. It started making urine and a lot of urine actually pretty quickly. So it was doing a major job that the kidney has to do. There are other jobs the kidney has to do too. And some people have raised questions about that. And it was only observed for 54 hours. So we don't know. There's rejection that it can occur immediately after a transplant. There's also rejection that can occur further down the line. This is something that researchers have been doing for a long time. And they're hoping that they can get hearts, lungs, livers out of, you know, using animals like pigs. And when you talk about the need about uh, of all of this, 100,000 Americans are on transplant waiting lists 
over 90,000 of them need kidneys specifically. Yeah, and that's not really the whole universe of people who need kidneys. Those are the people who qualify. They're healthy enough to be, and they have they do a whole kind of psychosocial screening. Those are people who qualify to be on a waiting list. We have half a million people in this country who have uh, end-stage renal disease, who have severe uh, disease in their kidneys and require dialysis. And dialysis is several times a week for several hours. It's very exhausting. These people usually cannot work and are quite debilitated by it because it does, they, they can do the function of the kidney, but it takes a lot out of them. So really the potential universe for this is, is enormous. Is it actually a pig kidney or, a, you know, is a genetically modified pig? Is it uh, grown to be more like a human kidney? Uh, how, how does that work? The pig itself is genetically modified like in order to knock out a gene encoding a certain sugar that human beings don't make and human beings actually will create antibodies against so that gene is knocked out so that they no longer make that sugar so there won't be immediate rejection there are other concerns there have been other pigs that have been modified to genetically engineered to or modified to not make certain retroviruses that's another big concern um, that pigs may carry viruses, retroviruses that could cross over to people. I mean, this, it is a complicated. Yeah. This is complicated. We've already had a pretty bad experience the last few years with a disease that crossed over from a species. Exactly. So. And, and, these, and these transplants specifically, they're called uh, xenotransplants. And as we mentioned, there are problems that do occur. So that's why they genetically modified that pig. What's been the reaction from the medical community? A, a lot of excitement, I imagine. Well, in this field, which is um, which is a pretty tight field and, and everyone knows everybody, they're cautiously optimistic. They definitely all agree this is a breakthrough. There's no question. We've been in the baboon stage for years, for a decade or so, finally kind of jumped ahead. But they're, you know, they're raising questions. And one doctor urged humility about all that we do not know. So I think they're going to take it carefully and there's, this has to be reproduced. Again, it also, this is again one of these things where they put out a press release, but we, we don't have data. There's no paper. There's no peer review yet. So we're going to wait for all those things and to see if it can be reproduced, if it can be done in more than one person. And just lastly, I just wanted to ask, because we already used heart valves from pigs, things like that. Why are pigs such good candidates for all this? Well, you know, it's interesting. There was this paper that actually compared a pig versus baboon and and, you know, pigs grow to maturation to adult size much, much more quickly, like in six months instead of several years. They're easier to raise and their kidney is about the size of an adult's kidney. So it's much easier to raise them. It's much easier to use them. There may also be a little less kind of squeamishness about it since <laughs> right. most of us do eat pork. Although the animal rights people are not happy about this at all, as you can imagine. They say we shouldn't be using animals for spare parts. Ronnie Rabin, health writer at the New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. moment that the science tells us that the scientists can give us word that it's time to go with uh, kids uh, 5 to 11 we're going to do joining it joining us now is sabrina siddiqui white house reporter at the wall street journal thanks for joining us sabrina thank you for having me the white house has unveiled its plans for how to roll out the vaccines for kids ages 5 to 11 once it's been authorized these vaccines would be administered at pediatric offices, pharmacies, and schools. Sabrina, help us walk through this. What do we know about the plan? 
Well, I think that there's been a lot of anticipation for a coronavirus vaccine for children. As of now, it's only been authorized for those ages 12 and up. And so the Biden administration really wants to try and get out ahead of what we expect to be an authorization in early November for ages 5 to 11. And the key here is going to be persuading parents to inoculate their young children, given there is also at the same time, even if a lot of anticipation, also a lot of reluctance among parents to give the vaccine to their children. So that's why they're focusing on places that parents trust, like the pediatrician and their doctor's office, schools and other community-based clinics, the kind of places where I think they feel that parents could have a conversation, get the information they need, and hopefully also just make it as convenient as possible for them to vaccinate their children. Let's talk about that a little bit more because there have been some surveys showing that a lot of parents say they're either going to wait or just don't plan on doing it at all. I think there was a Kaiser Family Foundation poll that said about 34% of them said they would do it right away. So kind of an uphill battle, I would think. Yes. And, you know, that poll, I think, was one of the places where we actually really did see just how much there is a reluctance among parents to vaccinate small children, even though Pfizer, which is the one that has manufactured the vaccine for kids age 5 to 11, found very few side effects among younger children. In fact, fewer side effects among younger children who got the vaccine in their clinical trials compared with people who are age 16 to 25 and and adults. So, you know, I think that there is also going to be a public education campaign that the administration is going to push out. And they're, again, going to partner on that with state and local health departments, faith leaders, and really, again, try and get inside of these communities because they really do feel like local messengers are a lot more trusted than the government telling you what to do. But, you know, this was an issue also with adolescents. Um, You know, the vaccine was approved in May for kids over the age of 12. And there were still relatively lower rates of vaccination among adolescents. So it's really going to be key here for them to drive home the case that the vaccine is still posing a far significantly less of a risk than your child getting COVID. And I think one thing that will help them in terms of the urgency is the fact that there have been higher rates of hospitalization among young children due to the Delta variant. As far as the vaccine itself, it is a lower dosage. It's still two shots given three weeks apart. And you mentioned some of those side effects in the 5 to 11 set. They didn't see any cases of myocarditis, which was one of those things that a lot of people were concerned about, too. Right. Uh, Myocarditis was a a rare side effect, you know, heart condition that they found in some younger adults and some adolescents. But it was still rare. But that was something that sparked concerns among parents. And over here with the small children, with the trials, they did not find that importantly. And they didn't even really find side effects like fever and chills among younger children, not among most of them. So I, you know, I think that that is something that you'll see them drive home is just how safe and effective it is. And, you know, it's going to be important, I think, though, and this is something that will be on, you know, the administration as well as state and local leaders to communicate, you know, how many other vaccines children are required to get when they go to school. And this is not even a requirement. It's going to be voluntary in most parts of the country. Only the state of California has said that eligible students will have to get vaccinated against COVID-19. And they're saying that that will take effect when the vaccine is granted full approval by the FDA. That's not even expected until 2022, because as you might recall, these are so far emergency authorizations that have been issued. So, you know, I think the other piece of this, you know, just to add to 
that point is, you know, schools have been such a battle politically and also just a source of stress for parents. Children are finally back in schools across the country, but there's been, yeah, yeah, I think there's been some fatigue. There are some places that are still enforcing mask mandates. There are other places that are fighting them. And there's all these mitigation measures that kids are kind of still living through every day when they go to school. And so I think a big part of the communication is probably going to be in order to safely keep schools open and also importantly to kind of bring a sense of normalcy back to schools. The only way out is really through vaccination. And the administration said that they're ready to roll as soon as this does get approved. They've already bought all of the doses that they need, the millions of doses that they need for kids in this age range. So they're they're ready to go. Yes, they are. In fact, um, they've already procured 65 million pediatric doses, which is enough to vaccinate all children ages 5 to 11 in the country. And today, White House COVID-19 coordinator Jeff Zients at a briefing said that once this emergency authorization is granted, which again, it's it's expected to be granted. So I'd say if and when it's granted <laughs> right. in early November, they're prepared to ship out 15 million doses within the first few days after, our, after authorization alone. And they're going to be sending smaller batches of shipments so that primary care and pediatrician offices can kind of receive them and distribute them accordingly. They're also trying to ensure that everyone has all the supplies that they'll need and even trying to help with some of the cold chain storage requirements. So they're trying to make it as easy as possible. And I think, look, like demand is not going to, because of the reluctance, demand is not going to be the same as it was for adults earlier this year. But part of this is also trying to avoid having long lines and people struggling to find appointments. And so again, trying to plan for the inevitable and make sure that this is all ready to go from day one. Sabrina Siddiqui, White House reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. And they would come back with giant garbage bags full of stuff to the, uh, a warehouse the Whitleys operated. They'd pay them in cash and they'd take the items and sell them online on places like Amazon Marketplace and Walmart Marketplace. Joining us now is Lucas Alpert financial crime reporter at market watch thanks for joining us lucas thank you let's talk about this uh, interesting story there's a father and daughter duo from atlanta who have been sentenced to more than five years in prison for a very professional shoplifting and online kind of marketplace ring that they were running they basically deploy people to go shoplift items from stores like cvs target a bunch of places and they'll take those items turn around and sell them on uh, online marketplaces I think they made about $6.1 million overall before they got busted. Lucas, so walk us through some of this. Tell us how it worked. Yeah, so essentially uh, uh, Robert and, uh, Whitley and his daughter Noni Whitley, they uh, were accused of running this rather elaborate ring where they would basically hire professional shoplifters and give them a list, a laundry list of items they needed. And it really ran the gamut from razor blades to Prilosec and other over-the-counter drugs and shampoo, you know, kind of really just the stuff you get at the drugstore. And they said, here, we need this. And the guys would go and steal what, you know, what they needed from Target and CVS and Walgreens and variety of stores like that. And they would come back with giant garbage bags full of stuff to the, uh, a warehouse the Whitleys operated. They'd pay them in cash and they'd take the items and sell them online on places like Amazon Marketplace and Walmart Marketplace. And they did this for really close to 10 years before they were caught. And the authorities uh, estimated that they had uh, stolen over $6 million worth of merchandise. So it was pretty substantial. 
where did authorities kind of start getting wind of this stuff? How, how did they come into the scope of the uh, of authorities? The court files don't specifically lay it out, but, you know, they were basically a fence for a bunch of shoplifters. So one can presume that perhaps some of the shoplifters got arrested and said, hey, you know, this is what we're doing. Yeah. That is meant as hinted at in the court filings that, you know, that there were uh, cooperating witnesses who were perhaps part of the part of the scam. So there's that, you know, that I think they were able to probably look at the sales history that the the Whitley's were running a business that, you know, had the online presence. And, uh, you know, they probably were able to look and see, well, this is what they're selling. And this matches up to all these items that disappeared from uh, these various stores at a certain time. So they were maybe able to piece it together. Well, the, the Whitley's, it was, it, there was an interesting backstory to it that the, the, the father, Robert Whitley, who's seven years old, he was known as Mr. Bob. He had had a history of uh, drug addiction when he was a younger man and had gotten heavily into shoplifting to, to, to sustain this. And in 1984, he, he was able to quit. He was a heroin addict and he was able to quit. And he got very involved in the kind of helping others, you know, sort of stay on the path to sobriety. He ran sort of help groups and, and Narcotics Anonymous meetings. And But he was also ultimately when they were running the scam, this is where he was finding his shoplifters. So most many of his the people they were employing were, were addicted to drugs yeah. themselves. You know, for a long time also, we had been hearing be careful what you buy on the internet from these marketplaces. You know, we know that there's been stolen goods on these marketplaces before. They were using all sorts of different ones. You mentioned Amazon, Walmart, other third-party e-commerce platforms. Any response by any of them to being used in these plots? No one's really responded directly to, you know, the specific case. But, you know, Amazon in particular has tries very hard to, you know, sort of roust out bad actors on their platform. I think they've primarily try and focus on counterfeit or bogus goods, you know, that that is a huge problem over the years. And I think that they, you know, employ a lot of resources to try and stop that. In this case, the goods were legitimate. So it's hard for Amazon, I think, to track where exactly this is coming from. So it's hard, you know, I don't, you know, obviously they don't want this. They don't want to be part of a criminal enterprise, you know, essentially. But, you know, it's hard. I, I think on the surface, there would be no obvious red flag this was a legitimately registered business you know that they had that the the whitleys were operating it on the surface looked like a mom and pop or you know father daughter family business you know small business uh you know so that's probably why it took a while for the you know the federal authorities to figure it out yeah and, and you know amazon was their biggest marketplace they sold 140,000 items there you know in a it looks like a seven-year span uh, making $3.4 million. So that was their biggest platform that they were making their money on. And in the end, uh, what did they uh, get? I, I mentioned five years and they had to pay some money back as well. The father, Robert, he got five, I think about around five and a half years and his daughter got five years. So pretty much the same, similar sentences. They also were ordered to pay, you know, restitution of something like four and a half million dollars. I forget exactly the figure, but it was something, you know, really substantial, basically all the money that was stolen. Or, you know, the money, the value of the goods that were stolen. Lucas Alpert, financial crime reporter at MarketWatch. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment. Give us a rating. 
and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Diver is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>